0: into mindset shifts that give you the power to decide how you feel, not the media, not your past, and not social conditioning. Then you'll discover how to use this inspiration and this new sense of confidence to be the best you, the you that you are meant to be. So get ready, my friend. It is time to get awesome inside out. Hey there. Thanks so much for tuning in to another interview episode on the awesome Inside Out podcast. If you enjoy this powerful conversation that I'm going to have today with Andre Norman, it would mean the world to me to have your support and have you part of this movement. And what that looks like is potentially subscribing, leaving a five-star review, maybe sharing with someone you love or on social media. It would mean the world to me for others to have access to this powerful content, So thank you so much again for being here and supporting. Also make sure to stay till the end as I'm going to offer some applicable takeaways based on today's conversation to upgrade your health and your life. And so right now, while the world remains in this unrest and the pandemic is still in full force, it's easy to look around and feel disheartened. And so then the question becomes, well, what can we do about it? How can we change our thinking, our perspective, our circumstances, and rewrite different narratives to uplift ourselves and others in the world? And so this week, I sat down with Andre Norman, a voice of inspiration, with a unique take on helping others through mentorship and meeting people in their shame. Andre lived a childhood surrounded by illiteracy and gang activity, which led him to a life of crime and violence eventually leading him to being sentenced to over a hundred years in prison. But Andre was able to envision powerful change in his life and in the lives of others. And so this week, I'm honored to sit down with Andre to chat about his journey and how, after two years of solitary confinement, armed with a dream of attending Harvard University and becoming a success, Andre walked out of prison after serving for 14 years. And he didn't stop there. Today, he is the author of Ambassador of Hope, Turning Poverty and Prison into a Purpose Driven Life, and known to many as the Ambassador of Hope. Andre travels around the world to serve as a mentor and listening ear to so many in need. Further, Andre's impact extends far beyond the US. He's worked in the Bahamas, Guatemala, Honduras, Liberia, Sweden, Trinidad, just to name a few. He is a highly sought after motivational speaker. That serves as a consultant for executive groups, prison systems, and nonprofit organizations. Additionally, Andre's work was instrumental in bringing an end to the protests in Ferguson, Missouri. I trust that Andre's wisdom will empower you to step into a life that is deeply meaningful, impactful, and a representation of who you truly are while also recognizing the impact that you can make. I also trust that this conversation will not only change your life, but empower you to think bigger than ever before and recognize the deeply meaningful impact that you can have on this planet. Hey, Andre, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for being here. I'm so thankful you had spoken at a Rising Glen Collective that my husband and I hosted a few, like a month, like two months, things, the times flying by. And people were just blown away in tears, texting us while you were speaking, emailing us after, just so, so thankful for your words of wisdom. and all of your inspiration. So thank you for being back and here today. My pleasure. I'm excited to have this conversation. And I first wanted to dive into your story because I think that it is such a light of hope right now, specifically what's coming up in the world and everything that's showing up for people and how people that I've been hearing from, people that I've been writing in and sharing, that they're just in this place of despair and without a lot to turn to. And they're hopeful that this pandemic would be over. They're hopeful that things would already have shifted. And I think it's important right now to build the resilience that you talk about. And so could we start with your story? I know you've told it so many times, but I would love to just start there.
1: Okay, well, I mean, my story is, I grew up in the city of Boston. Uh, My mom married a high school sweetheart and he went to prison for private banks. And she met my dad and she had four more kids. So six kids, mom, dad, it was cool as a kid. There was a lot of kids in the house. My dad had a habit of beating up my mom. So we went through the domestic violence cycle. And I didn't know that this wasn't normal because at four, five, and six, I didn't get to visit anybody else's house. So this is all I saw. And eventually, we got old enough to go to school, which was a happy day because my older brothers and sisters went to school. They were gone all day. And we got to go to school all day. And one day, riding home from school, kids lined up on the side of the road through rocks and buses at our, rocks and names at our bus because there was a... Thing in Boston about forced of schools, where they made black kids go to white schools and vice versa, and the whole city went crazy. And as a result, they would stone the buses, and call us names. We went through that whole ordeal. And one day the rock stopped, and my mom one day the beating stopped. She finally put my dad out because she had enough. So now you got a single mom, six kids living in inner city, and it's just tough. And going to public schools, ton of kids. I mean. First grade, second grade, third grade, fourth grade, I mean it's like a bunch of it was a bunch of us. And it was hard because she refused going government assistance. So she's working nine jobs and it's just all bad. By the time I get to middle school, I found out we're poor. Then the kids start making fun of you for the stuff that you don't have. And then somebody had an idea, hey, we can go to the corner, we can make some money selling weed after school. I didn't start selling drugs to be cool or to buy a car. I just wanted the kids to leave me alone so I can buy cool stuff so I can be accepted. And once you get into that lane, once you get into that space of doing criminality, it just takes on a whole of the life of its own. My objective was just a cool pair of sneakers and a backpack. But once you're in that life, the life just sucks you away. And I just went down that rabbit hole. I woke up at 18 with over 100 years worth of state prison sentences for committing all kinds of crimes. I get to the state prison. And I was scared. When I first, first got to prison, I was scared to death. But then I realized shortly, it was just a reunion of all my friends from special needs, all my friends from the principal's office, all my friends from juvie, all my friends who got kicked off the football team. It was just like a big building full of people who washed out, and I had washed them all. And then I got in with them, and for six years, I just wanted to be the best gang member I could. Got in trouble, got in fights, got in riots, you name it. And then after six years of doing that, I finally woke up and realized that I'm, I was the king of nowhere. Okay, I'm in charge, I'm the boss, but I'm in the middle of nowhere, in a prison cell locked in a basement. Nobody really cares. So I realized I didn't want to spend the rest of my life in that space. So I said I wanted to go home and be successful. So I picked Harvard University as my destination. Everybody thought I was crazy. It was impossible. But I set on my trek to go to Harvard. And I went against all the naysayers, my family and friends included, taught myself how to read, taught myself the law, went to anger management, went to counseling, went to therapy. For the next eight years, that's all I did 20 hours a day. I finally got out of prison in 1999, I started working with kids. First it was black boys, because that's what I understood. Then they introduced me to working with black girls. Then it was white kids in suburban schools. Then it was teachers who teach black kids. Then it was, they just, just kept scaling up. Because then I had an insight that you really couldn't find in the university, book. I lived it. And I lived it at a level in a space that most people haven't lived in and came back from. So then mm-hmm. I had the ability, what made me different from other people was my ability to articulate what I saw and what I knew. A lot of people have lived it. We don't have the ability to articulate it. They can't explain the pain points and the ways things connect and how you actually see it from different vantage points. So I started teaching teachers at Harvard, at MIT, at BC, at BU, at London Business School. I just started teaching people, and I've been. I'm, I have this imposter syndrome. Like I'm some high school dropout, prison gang member, and I'm just waiting for this guy to come around the corner who knows everything and shut me down. Like this guy's a fraud. He knows nothing. Because I'm thinking what I was taught, that if you don't have a degree in something, and you're not an expert in something, that you're not really valuable. I knew way more than any professor. I've been out here for 20 years, and I've yet to meet the person that tell me I'm a fraud in the space that I'm in. And I just kept helping people. White kids, black kids, Spanish kids, teachers, rich kids, poor kids, businesses, small businesses, drug addicts. And that's just what I've been doing. And I've been to Ferguson, Missouri. We stopped the riots in Ferguson. We went to West Africa and work with the child soldiers in Liberia. We went to Honduras and helped the government deal with cartels. We went to St. Louis when they had the highest murder rate in the world. We went to um, Scottsdale when they had kids ODing, white kids ODing on um, heroin, opioids, whatever you want to call it. We just show up and I've been good at collaborating. So I'll meet somebody and I'll call you a year from now saying, hey, we need to go over here and do this. And we bring people to the table. And it's, I believe that Somebody with a different vantage point from you can see differently, therefore add another lens. And it's said, another lens is, is most important. It's not always getting people that look like you, sound like you, think like you. Sometimes you need a different vantage point. My best friend on this planet is named Morgan Zalkin. We met in, when I was in 11th grade. She's from Miami, I'm from Boston. Well-off young lady, white girl from Miami, super cool, my best friend. And she came to visit me in prison one day. And she told me, we had a discussion, and I was like, well, I would hit somebody if they hit me first. She said, what well, if a girl hit you first? I said, I hit them back, too. And she said, you can't do that, Andre. I'm like, yes, I can. My mother told me, anybody put hands on you does not mean you hit them back. And we went back and forth for the whole visit. Nothing like over the top. That's just our discussion for the day. And then she went home. I went back to myself, to my cell, <laughs> locked in a cage. And I'm saying, this is my best friend. I love her more than anybody. And she's telling me a vantage point that I won't accept. I won't accept that you can't hit somebody back. And I'm thinking she's wrong for even having that concept. Because she's a girl. That's why she's saying that. And I say, wait a minute. She has the life that I want to live. She's traveling around the world. She's in university. She's studying. She's having friends. She has friends. So the person with the life that I want has a view that I want. I won't accept it. So I'm in prison where I hate being. And I'm holding on to this view that's not working. She's in the world living a life that I want to live with a view that I refuse to accept. I said, well, either I needed to get used to being here or learn to see things differently. So I said, okay, I can't just hit everybody back. That was like the first break in my chain because I had all these rules that I was raised with. And there were bad rules that didn't work out well for me. And Morgan that day, it took about 45 minutes in the visitor room. Then the light came off later. I read it, man. She has a perfect life. I have a life that's horrible. I'm clutching to these rules and codes that do me no good. So I had to learn to unlearn a lot of things. Right. Learning new stuff was easy, unlearning old stuff was hard.
0: Ah, uh, yes. The unlearning process is, so. is really so powerful. And I know from experience that it can be really one of the hardest parts of our journey. And so I'm curious when you had that pivotal moment that you said, I'm done, enough is enough. What was it about that moment that created the sustainable momentum for change? Because I know when people hear your story, they are blown away by your resilience to just show up day after day after day, 20 hours a day studying and going to classes. And I'm curious where that internal strength came from and the resilience and the hope to cultivate a different vision. Because I can imagine with a life sentence of a hundred years and two years in solitary confinement, most individuals, including myself, would probably become pretty hopeless and just give up and say, I'm done. So I'm curious. Yeah, I'm curious about that.
1: What happens is if you look at it from your vantage point, you have a nice house, you have a nice life, you have a nice family, you went to a good school. And you I mean, it's, it's not saying it's perfect, but it's, it's something decent. So mm-hmm. hopelessness for you is drastically different than hopelessness for me. Right. Being hungry, being attacked, being on God, all these things are daily did day normal things for me. So it's not, it looks hopeless from your seat. Oh, wow. And if you go get any ninth grader in an inner city school, my life isn't hopeless. It's detracted He's on. So if you're sitting in a nice house in a nice part of town with kids and the family in a car, like that looks hopeless from where you're sitting. I grew up in a house with no heat. I grew up in a house with no dad. I grew up in a house where they sold drugs out front. I grew up in a house where it's so chaos to me is normal. I've been watching my mother get beat up since I was a baby. So normal for me is different. So this isn't hopeless. This is just where all the black men in my space go. This is rite of passage. This is how we come up. This is normal. So for us, or for me, I'm just something that's not hopeless. So I mean wow. hopeless for an NBA star is a repo is Bentley. He's outside crying, what's the matter repo my Bentley? I'm like, really? He got three more cars over there. But that's hopeless for him. Right. Hopeless is relative. And most people don't look at it from where I came up and how I came up. So it was just, right. I never saw it as hopeless. It was just like, this is what I'm supposed to be. And I don't want to be here anymore. So I wasn't saying, oh I didn't wake up and say this is so horrible. This has been my life since birth.
0: So in terms of that moment and then that shift of cultivating that resilience, because I do know that you inspire people right, from whatever vantage point they're in to look at their life. And so can you talk a little bit about how you're supporting these young kids to really shift into creating a different outlook for their life wherever they are in relationship to their vantage point? Like, how are you supporting them? And what what does that look like? Because I'm like blown away right now. Just just that alone has completely shifted (laughs) my experience of like even referencing like privilege and vantage points and just looking at everything so differently.
1: I look at privilege as you're guaranteed food at the end of the day. There's Mm -hmm. breakfast, lunch, and dinner. There's heat. There's TV. There's nobody getting beat up in your house. These things I consider privilege. I don't need you to have a mansion in the Rolls Royce. Nobody's getting beat up. Nobody's getting cussed out. There's food in the refrigerator. You're allowed to eat. There's heat on. There's clean sheets and blankets. You have clean underwear and socks. To me, that's privilege. Anything Mm. above and beyond that is just like extra. So you come Mm. home, there's no locks on the doors, inside the houses, on the bedrooms, stuff like that. Nobody's hiding food in their room. That's privilege. So when I go out and I talk to kids or young folks now, Let's say I go to an inner city and there's some black kid who's just having a hard time adjusting or getting along. He's stressed out for whatever reason. I can sit down and tell him, first, I listen to him or her, and I hear their pain. Now, understand where their pain is coming from. Is it a disconnect with mom? Is it a disconnect with dad? Is it a disconnect with their self-esteem? They don't look a certain way. They don't fit into a certain group. They don't have that. I understand that having the cool stuff. So when I go to an inner city kid's house, I do three things. I'll sit in the kitchen and I ask for something to drink. I'm going to make them open a the refrigerator because I want to know, does mm. the kid have food in the house? That's mm. essential. Then when I'm talking to mom or grandma, I say, I need to use the bathroom. I'll go to the bathroom. I want to see is, if the bathroom's dirty, the house is done. It's a whole dirty. Then I want to see where the kid is sleeping. Does he have, I mean, I've been to houses where there's beds on the floors. They're sleeping on mats. There's no, there's no sheets on the bed. What kind of living spaces does a kid have? So I try to find these things out before I even talk to the kid, because these are the things that influence the kid. And the biggest thing that I do is I walk into their shame, because where they live and how they live, I know because I lived it, is shameful. So when you come out of that house, no matter how horrible it is, you try to put on a happy face when you go to school. You don't want to tell people, oh, my sister's an addict. Oh, my mother is getting beat up. Oh, we don't have food or heat. You put on a happy face and everything's great. So I go behind the happy face and I look in the refrigerator. I look at the bathroom. I look at the living circumstance. And I see their shame. Then I treat them the same. I love them the same. Then I start having a conversation. I don't judge them. Then the person says, wow, he sees all this. I know he sees it and he's not judging me. This is somebody that I can trust. Because once I go into judgment mode, they shut down. And if I try to act like I don't see it, they shut down. So, I, I'll speak to it, but I, I'll just speak to it in a way that's respectful and it's supportive. And then I'll start listening to how they see the word based on the inputs that they're dealing with. Then I help them walk from where they are to where they need to be. Then, like, there was one kid whose room was a whole house of disaster. Twice he flunked the ninth grade, he was on track to fail the third time. You know what I told the kid? You need to go to the library, the public library, and do your homework. He said, I can do that. I said, yes, you can. He's graduated from high school. He's graduated from college. He has a great job. All it took was for me to get, not all, but one of the main things was to tell him he did not have to go home to that house and attempt to do his homework and schoolwork in chaos. I took him to the library. We got him a free library card. And every day after school, he'd go to the library and he could do his work. The house where he lived and the people he was around was just not conducive for education. A lot of drinking, a lot of other stuff. And it was just cave, crazy for him. He just needed someone to tell him, here's another way to do this. And He was like, wow. And he started going, and now he's having a successful life. And when I go mm-hmm. to a suburban kid's house, got a white kid, mom, dad, two cars in the driveway. They own a company, run a business or something. And this kid's stressed out. When I walk in, now most likely, if it's a suburban white kid, he or she's already been in therapy. He's already been to counseling. He's already been to the school psychiatrist. He's already been to all these little checklists. He's already had seen his primary doctor and all the rest of the stuff. And they all told him a variation of what the parents told him to say. You know what I'm saying? You're wrong. You oh, need to wow. get your act together and you need to get in line and have this life that we charted out for you. Mm-hmm. You don't care how you feel about it. You're going to walk this line. And the kid feels disconnected. So when I walk into that scenario, suburban white kid, I don't look like their parent. I don't look like any of the doctors or the professionals that they dealt with. I don't sound like their parents. So they're completely cut off guard because they're used to the guy, the blazer, the white jacket, the doctor, such and such, or the therapist, such and such, coming to give them medicine of some sort. So he got the six foot six two black ex-gang member walking And they're like, do you even know my parents? Do you really <laughs> know my parents? I mean, because they're getting some cool points just for finding you right now. And it's like, there's no connectivity. To what they've been going through, and the basically trying to get help and be heard, they're getting help is really to be heard. When people aren't heard, they hurt themselves in multitudes of ways. So this child is not being heard, so they're hurting themselves. Whether they're doing drugs, self mutilation, risky behavior, so I come in and I don't sound, look, or feel like the parents. So it's like right. I can talk to this guy. Then they start talking, and I start listening. And then they'll Mm -hmm. tell me where their pain is from. And again, find their shame, find their shame. Mm -hmm. And it's different for different people. I've had 15 year old girls that could be supermodels, but they don't think they're skinny enough. Or mom didn't give them enough praise. Then you get the kid who's a number one A athlete, but he can't read that well, or or his his dog, whatever it is. You never know what somebody is really attached themselves to. I should say, well, why are you scared of the dog? It's no big deal. People's fears are people's fears. Because right. you're not scared of the dog doesn't mean I shouldn't be. And you, I need you to respect my fear or my pain. If I mm-hmm. saw that as hurtful to me, then let go, oh, that's nothing. No, you can't tell me it's nothing for me. And then when you do that, again, I'm not being heard as a 15-, 16-, 12-year-old. And once I feel as though I'm not being heard, I turn to alternative behaviors because I'm not being hurt.
0: Yes, I am in such agreement. Thank you for sharing. And yeah, I think it's so important to meet people in their pain and in their shame. And it is something that is very overlooked. And I was watching some of your videos about working in the prison system. And I wanted to talk a little bit about your experience with that today, because similar to what you were just sharing through the work that you're doing with prisoners, you share how you feel it's so important to meet the prisoners in their pain, in their shame, and how it's an important tool to help heal, learn, and grow. And through this process, the prison that you're helping run has not had any violence or any fights since you started. So I wanted to dive a little bit more in that because I think that's so important to have this conversation so that we can learn from it and also get behind it and support you further.
1: With the prison work, these are men and women who the women have been through extreme abuse, Mm -hmm. molestation, rape, prostitution, domestic violence, you name it, they torture. The women have been through some of the worst of the worst. And the men have been through extreme trauma, which put them in a situation where they felt the need to act out. And whether they were being abused as children, neglected as children, I am not excusing any criminal act by any person. We're not talking about the crime that put them in jail. We're talking about the why they felt compelled to do crime. So I committed crimes in the, in the sixth grade. I sold drugs. I did it. Now, if you ask me why I did it, it was to get the kids stopped laughing. And then once I got on that path, I made the choice. Nobody twisted my arm. There were other alternatives, I'm sure. I just didn't see them. And I got on that path, and I started out as a kid trying to buy a backpack and a cool pair of jeans. Now I'm a teenager carrying a gun running up in people's houses. So it starts, and you take them all the way back to the beginning. I had a session about a month ago. I got all these big-time gang leaders. They have hundreds of people under them. And what I said? I said, okay, let's go back to the first time we did something wrong. Six out of 10 of them, it was stealing candy. Six out of 10 of them, the first crime they've ever committed was stealing candy from the store. Wow. It started wow. there. You know why they stole candy? Because they didn't have 25 cents to buy it. So I'm not justifying or saying, hey, because they couldn't have candy money, they should have become criminals, but six out of 10 of the biggest gang members or leaders or influencers in the state of South Carolina, their first crime was stealing candy from the corner store. And so if we could have got to them early and got them candy, a bag of candy from the supermarket could have stopped six people from going down that path. So it's not, it's never how much it's, when in, are, you, are you doing the right thing at the right time? So I go in and I we start there and they're sitting around and looking at each other. That they started, that I said, Who else stole some candy? The first two said it and I lied. You was the second guy and the third guy. Got <laughs> to the sixth day say me too. And I couldn't remember, I, that was probably the first thing I did. was still mm. still candy on the way to school. That's what we did. Go on the way to school. We go on the store, we steal candy. And it just starts that real simple and it scales up. And So I go in and I talk to them about where they started. I know where they are because I'm there with them. So I talk about where they started and why were you stealing candy? Why were you stealing food? Why were you doing these things? And I want you to understand where you originally, or my mother couldn't do this, or my dad couldn't do that, or my auntie or my grandmother, or it was forbidden for this, or we didn't have this. And those are the, the seeds that we have to pull out. Just something that was wrong is too easy. Why did you start? And let's go back to the beginning of that and then walk them through. Then we walk them from there.
0: Yeah. And is the walking through process, like you said, this unlearning process? And what does that look like? What is the unlearning process in which you're helping them? And even through your own learnings, you were talking about unlearning these stories that you had taken on and these beliefs. How does one do that?
1: Well, again, it's a lot of listening. So they've been through a lot. Again, the mm-hmm. first thing you have to do is separate the crimes they're in prison for and what you're trying to do. I am not trying to ab- absolve them for crimes committed. I'm trying to get them into a mindset that they don't commit anymore. I don't want them to hurt anybody else. I don't want anybody else to suffer because we refuse to acknowledge and fix this. If we don't, if you got a flat tire, if you get in the car and the brakes don't work, you drive going to hell it crashes. You put the car back at the front of the hill, but you don't fix the brakes. Next, we're going to cut it right the So I'm just fixing the brakes on these cars. I'm not trying to say, hey, this is good or bad. Let's fix the brakes so this car stops crashing. So I sit with them, and we'll walk through their life, their shame. And they'll see some of the early reasons they started committing crimes. Then it scales up. So we do the same thing in reverse. Let's go back and fix that first reason you had to steal. What could we have done differently? What could have been done differently? So I do it for myself. If What could I have done differently? What would have happened if I didn't have to steal clothes to be cool? What if I had like a cool aunt or somebody who gave me some clothes? Then what? I probably just joined a track team or something. I ran track one time, but I didn't have shorts. Like the gym shorts, I couldn't afford gym shorts. So that's why I got, I got off the track team. I couldn't afford a uniform. So I could have been a track star. I could have been a lot of things. So we're going back and it's not justifying my wrong. is understanding the things that took me off the positive track and put me on a negative track. Because as I'm speaking to them in the now, we don't want them to repeat that behavior. So it's the behavior we're trying to correct.
0: And can we talk a little bit about the mentorship program? Because I loved watching that in the videos where you're having this mentorship children of these younger kids growing up and empowering them now.
1: A lot of the programs that I do are birthed out of my own heart, my own pain. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I say to myself right now, had I had a mentor when I was in the fifth grade, I had friends who played one and football, but their moms could pay for it. Somebody paid for it, they got them in the field. I would have loved to play football. I think I'd have been like one of the world's greatest middle linebackers in all time history. I was fast. I was strong. I think a thousand miles a minute. I'm a great leader. I communicate well. And I mean, I just go hard and I love smashing into things. I mean, I believe the middle linebacker position in the NFL was designed for me. And it just hand-eye coordination. I see stuff, I read stuff. I mean, I'd have been the greatest against Ray Lewis or any of the rest of them. I'd have been in that discussion. But there was nobody to actually pay the 10 bucks me and play Pop Warner. Or whatever the pads and the helmet was. Nobody drive me to practice. So I didn't get that chance for the coaches to see how great I could have been. So I was a guy that the coach didn't get a chance to see. So I look now and I say, how many of these kids just need to be in the right space but don't have the 10 bucks? Don't. I, there was one program, the kids couldn't get to the program because they didn't have transport. So I bought them a van. I went and bought a van for the program because I wanted that van to pick me up, but it didn't exist. So I yeah, I, I funded the program. And then he was like, he told me they were picking the kids up and they couldn't get them all. I said, What do you need? He said, well, A van would be great. I went, Here's the money. Go buy a van. It was no long discussion, no forms. Hey, go buy a van. Because there's kids someplace now that are going to get picked up that wouldn't have otherwise. And I just think of what my life would have been had there been a van to pick me up and take me to practice. I wouldn't have spent 14 years in prison. I seriously doubt that. So all most of when I'm talking to the kids, it's about I wasn't hurt as a young kid. I was just put them in a the room and close the door. And you just figured out the, learning how to process emotions and things that you're going through. Nobody taught me how to process. They just left me to figure it out by myself. And I didn't do it well. So now I help kids process. I just don't talk to them. I teach them how to process what they're going through. So they can then continue on forward. So most of the stuff that I do started way back from the stuff that I wanted done.
0: I love that. Thank you. I also wanted to dive a bit into mentorship and I'm curious your thoughts on mentoring children and the need for this. So my husband has always been like a very strong advocate on encouraging other adults to mentor just one child and take them under their wing and support them and be there unconditionally. And it really makes me think about if we all just mentored one child, how different the world would be. And so I'm curious if that's something an individual wants to do, what would be the most important things that you would suggest to that mentor? And so I've heard suggestions like not talking to them in a way that you're telling them what to do or or allowing them to process their emotions, be in their pain, be in their shame, like we've talked about. Is there anything else you highly recommend or is it just about really showing up consistently over and over again? And what are those things that you think are really important and the steps that if we or the listeners decide to take a mentorship role that they could all be actively doing so that the world can become a much different, more beautiful place?
1: Well, the first thing is, you have to get your thinking right. And I've been told, well, white folks can't mentor black folks and Spanish folks can't mention. The first thing as a young black kid who needs mentor, and it's young white kids who need mentors as well, is the first thing that matters is consistency. You need to be consistent. The second thing is, that you have capacity to help me. The third thing is that you have character, that you're an upstanding person. I'm saying the fourth thing would be consistency, character, capacity. Yeah, those are three main things that you have to have, or you should have, if you want to be a mentor. The color of your skin is not important to me. because number one mentor now, and has been an Orthodox George rabbi. You a white guy. That's my guy. He's my number one mentor. He showed up. He, oh, you have to care, too. That's the fourth C, yeah. care. <laughs> so he showed up. He cared. He was consistent. And he had character. Mm-hmm. And the fact that he wasn't black, I'm not tripping. If you said Dre, I'll give you a black mentor who's going to be inconsistent and doesn't have time for you, I'll give you a white guy who's going to care about you and show up and have capacity for you. Give me the white guy. Give me the best mentor. I mean, if he happens to be black, then great. But if he's not black, that's fine. What I need is guidance. What I need is support and rules and accountability. And that's the most important thing. And people say, well, how can you help a black kid? Because you're going to teach them that you care, you're going to show up on time, you're going to be credible, and you're going to have a consistent message for them. That's what we need. That's what any kid needs. If you look at college sports, 90% 90% of the coaches are white. 70% of the players are black. So white people can't coach black kids. It happens every single day. If Nick Saban can do it in Alabama, you can do it in California. saying Nick Saban has like 75 black kids on his team. He mentors them every day. Michael Jordan, the greatest basketball player in the history of basketball. Dean Smith was a white guy. And he loved Dean Smith. Dean Smith did a wonderful job in mentoring Michael Jordan. Now, mm-hmm. John Thompson at UConn did great with Allen Iverson, Patrick Ewing, and the rest. But, I mean, Michael Jordan came out okay. Patrick Ewing came out okay. You know why? They had great mentors. One happened to be black. One happened to be white. But they were great mentors. That's mm-hmm. the key thing. They both had character. They both were consistent. They both cared. They both showed up. They both. Those are things that not, And if you happen to be black, too, great.
0: Right.
1: But that's the last thing on the list. It's really not even on the list. It's just like an after mention.
0: I love that. I think it's so important. And I think we underestimate the impact that we can have on, on a child's life. Like I'm just thinking back on my life. And there were a couple women who are just have always been there consistently. And it's that like unconditional love. And I think it's also the energy of... I can fuck up, and I can make a mistake, and there's not going to be that shame or the like pushback or the you're grounded or the disappointment. But it's an understanding and a meeting you in your pain, and so I love that.
1: No, you can get all those things. The mentor can get disappointed. You can get grounded. You can get you can get stern (laughs) conversations, but it's with love. It's with love. (laughs) Yeah. Disappointment is the greatest weapon against a child, because for the child to be disappointed. But the child or kid that you're disappointed, they have to love you and oh, have to know wow. that you love okay. them. So disappointment is the greatest weapon you have against a child. It's bigger than punishment, taking away stuff. Because if the child believes you to love them and, you, and you're and you disappointed, you just upset their whole world.
0: I didn't think of it that way. That's so interesting. Yeah. And I'm I'm sure there are those stern conversations and stern talks <laughs> that do happen. Yeah. But I just think back, I'm like, OK, I, I definitely have have witnessed this like unconditional love and presence and the consistency.
1: When I'm at the prison and I got guys, they know I love them. I mean, I'm all mm-hmm. in for them. I'm there seven days a week, six. I mean, I'm there 10 hours. I'm there. They know if nobody else loves us, Andre loves us. You know what my biggest weapon is? I'll put one of the guys at the side and be like, yo, you know I'm disappointed in you're right. Like, Come on, Dre, don't do that to me. Don't do that to me. <laughs> I'm like, dude, I'm hurt right now. They would prefer being yelled at. They would prefer being punished. They would prefer, something. don't say that you're disappointed in me because that's emotional. I can't fight that. I can fight a beating. I can withstand cussing. I can take, tolerate being stuff taken away from me. I can't fight you being disappointed. That's emotional. So it was a couple of guys. I, I, I used to spare we had one guy, love him to death. One of my dudes, love him. And he did something that was really, we had some stuff on the unit and he did something that put one part of the program in jeopardy. It was something really small, simple. And his whole thing is I love Dre. Dre's going, I'm going to fall Dre to the end of the earth. I sat in the cell and him, I said, listen, buddy. I said, you know something? You can stay in the program. I'm not kicking you out of the program, but there's no way you're going to do anything with me outside of these walls, because what you did today was petty, and I don't hang out with petty people. I said, that was really petty what you did. I said, you your game was so petty, and was so small, that it was, I, can't, I can't bend down that low. So I'm going to tell you what, feel free to stay in the program. Feel free to sit in front of the class, but have no aspirations of seeing me outside of these walls and doing anything with me because I don't work with petty people outside. He was crushed. Because <laughs> he's all he thought was, I'm going to work with Dre. I'm going to go with Dre goes. And for me to call him petty and told him, I, I don't understand it. That's small thinking. I'm trying to teach big thinking. You're subscribing to small thinking. So you go sit on the other side of the room. I said, when you're ready to come over here back to the big thinker side, we can discuss it. But you're going to go on the other side of the, room with the small thinkers. And I'm just totally crushed right now. And it, I thought you were one of my best. I guess I was wrong. Wow. For the next 60 days, he was the hardest working man on the planet because he wanted to earn that respect back. He wanted to earn that trust back. And there's nothing. He wasn't prepared for that because A, was truthful. I said it in a loving way. And he was like, man, I need this guy in my life. And I need him in my life at an emotional stability level. I just don't need to be in my proximity. I need him to be in, I need him to believe in me. Says says giving me the power to believe in myself. So when he takes that away, my whole life, his whole life's upside down. Wow. So I still love him. And it, it was intentional because I knew I've hit about four guys with a disappointed line. And it's mm-hmm. four of my top guys. You have to be like one of the closest guys to me for the for the matter.
0: Wow! Yeah, such a powerful mindset shift. I've never thought of it that way. Thank you. Yeah, thank you for opening my mind to so many different beliefs and way of thinking. I love doing this podcast and having these conversations because it just allows me to really unlearn as well and <laughs> just unlearn a lot of a lot of things that. I have taken on throughout my life as well. You have an incredible book and I want to make sure people can support you and the work that you're doing. So can you share us a little bit about where they can find you, how they can get in contact? and you talk all over the world for all of these top organizations. You speak, you share, you collaborate, you do such incredible work. So if people want to learn more, where can they find you? Where can they get your book? And then how can they support you?
1: Well, you know the place to get anything on the planet, Amazon. Amazon. <laughs> if you can't get on Amazon, it ain't in the, world. It's um, not my, in the
0: world. It's not in the world.
1: My book is on Amazon for sure. Just go to Amazon and type in my name, Andre Norman. It's my only book that'll pop up, Ambassador Hope. My website is really tricky. It's my name, andrenorman.com. All my social media platforms are my name, Andre Norman. Genius Network, run by Joe Polish. Um, that's my brother. We're like locked in. He is huge on recovery work, and we do the recovery work together. So Genius Recovery is an addiction platform where we work together to try to bring about healing and humanity for people who are suffering from addiction through Genius Recovery. And he's been funding that himself for for years because it just needs to be done, and he's not waiting around for a government grant or a company to say, hey, I think this is a good idea. He believes it to be a good idea. So he funds it, and he funds my SpaceNet as well. So Genius Recovery is a definite place you can find me. And I mean, just shout out—they can reach out to you. Like, hey, I want like you call me. I said, sure, no problem. People for <laughs> some reason believe like I'm really hard to find because <laughs> uh, he must be super busy. He's soon, I am, but okay, you call me, I stop what I'm doing. You know I'm saying? Mm-hmm. I saw, like, this is like my vacation. This is a vacation. You show you. That's, the, I don't know if you can see it.
0: Oh, wow. Oh, my We're God. At the so beach. We're not at
1: the beach today. Yeah, the so, beach. At the beach. But know something? I put it on the schedule. I'm on the beach. No problem. I sit down for 40, 50 minutes. We have a conversation. Then I go back yeah. to the beach. I mean, the, the world is not moving that fast that the you world, can't stop a yeah. good friend for 40, 50 minutes. I'm never mm-hmm. that busy. So anybody you. that you know, this is hey, we want to connect. We can do a monthly podcast. We can do whatever. You want me to come on once a month? I'll come on once a month. You want to come on once a week? i come on once a week. I believe people can make happen in their lives what they want. Mm-hmm. I wanted to go to Harvard University. I made it. I wanted to travel the world. I've done it. I want to help people. It's actually my occupation. They pay me to help people. That's crazy. You know what I'm saying? I wanted to run a prison as a former gang member. I do it. So if I want to come on your podcast once a week, it's for us to agree. Don't allow people to tell you what you can and can't do. Don't let people hold you in your yesterday. So yesterday I was. Today I'm no more. And when I decide I want to be something different, it's when I say so, not when the world acknowledges me. Wow. So many people wait for the world to say, oh, you're ready. Oh, you're acceptable. Oh, you're this. Oh, No, it's when I say so. Because at the end of the day, I'm in charge of Andre Norman. When Andre Norman says, I'm a better person, or I'm going to be I I don't need the world to sign off. I don't need 2,000 likes on Instagram. Oh, I got 2,000 likes. I guess it's okay. I don't need any likes. I need to like it. Because I get up in the uh-huh. mirror and I walk in the bathroom, I talk to myself in the morning. I'm like, hey, Dre, how you doing? And what are you going to do today? <laughs> I don't <laughs> believe I have like the Instagram world on my shoulder.
0: Yes. Oh, I love that. And I love today. I'm no more. Cause I, I've never heard it referenced that way. And it's it's so powerful. It's so powerful. Cause so often we're thinking, well, today I'm this or I am, but today I'm no more. I'm not yesterday. I love because that.
1: Because if you ask say right now, whatever your daily schedule, you have all the stuff on the board behind you. You take all the wonderful notes. If you walked in tomorrow and said, Hey, podcast done. I'm now doing a, I'm doing a newsletter article for Medium. There's some people that are not going to agree with that. They're going to tell you, no, you can't make that change. You need to make the change differently. You need to segue off. You just can't automatically stop that. We, we have to like a three-week transitional period. Like, no, I said today. No, Thank no, goodness. but that's wrong. It's my life. It's my idea. It's, how is it wrong? It doesn't fit your narrative. Well, so many people will be upset and they will get over it. hmm People Mm -hmm. were sad today Michael Jackson died, but they got over it. Mm -hmm. So if you think that you can't change your life because other people won't agree with it, then we got a problem. Michael Jordan said, I'm done playing basketball. I'm going home now, people. It was nice talking to you. You can't quit. You're the best player in the world. We want to see you play. We want to see you play. We want to see you perform. We want to do... None of that about you. You should just be happy with the money they're giving you. Take the money and shut up, Michael. Michael Jordan said, ladies and gentlemen, it's been fun. I'm going home now. See you later. Bye. And -hmm. people were upset.
0: Yep. Yep.
1: You don't have the right to make that decision. Yep. (laughs) He said, I'm going to go play baseball. You can't do that, Mike. You suck (laughs) at baseball. (laughs) He did it. He lived his life. And that's what I want the viewers to do. Live your life. Don't ask for permission to do what's positive. Don't ask mm-hmm. for permission to do what your dreams are. Don't ask for permission to live your passion. There's no permission to live your passion. That's your decision. Stop mm-hmm. giving it to the committee. Call your girlfriends. What do you think about this girl? I think about doing this. Yo, buddy, yo, homie, I'm thinking about... I don't call anybody. I ask my mentors, hey, mentor, what do you think about this? And the true mentors say, well, have you thought it through? What do you want to do? Not what do other people want you to do. Start with mm-hmm. what other people want you to do. If the other person, if you're not married, then the other people don't count. <laughs> if you're not married, not dating, if you are not married, the other persons don't count. If he didn't get your ring, he don't get a chance to say nothing.
0: I love that. It's so true. and so powerful. And I think we need to hear that more and more, especially when, especially online, where it's people are dictating their posts and what they're saying based on engagement instead of what's true and in, in their heart and... I think the more that we keep stepping into that and our truth, the more beautiful the I had the a world lot of companies
1: ask me in the last couple of weeks about what can they say about Black Lives Matter? What should they say about George Floyd? What's the appropriate response? And it, is this enough? I did Blackout Tuesday. I'm like, you need to speak from your heart, say what's true for you, and say what matters in your life. And if mm-hmm. it's not a public agreement, I tell people, I protest, but I don't march. You will not see Andre Norman march down the street with a sign in his hand. It's not what I do. I stand up. I'm for black equality. I'm for, for better treatment. I'm for a better system. But you will not see Andre Norman in a, a mall, a mob of two, three hundred people holding the sign saying "I can't breathe" or anything like that. That's not how I protest. And if people, I have people get mad at me. Yo, you gotta, you, you go to a rally. I'm like, no, I don't do rallies. Now, if it's a rally and they want me to speak because I happen to be a speaker, I'll definitely show up and put flames on a mic. But if you don't ever look for me in the crowd, I don't stand Mm. in crowds. Never have. And just because this is a a movement, if you feel comfortable standing in the crowd, you go stand in the crowd. I'm going to do it my way. That's it. And you can't tell me how to protest. You can't tell me the proper way to speak out. My mother told me, you have a voice, you use it. The way you feel comfortable. You're not going to pressure me in to protesting your way. And I'm not knocking yours, but don't knock mine.
0: Yeah. I remember the thing that stood out the most from your last speech at Rising Glen was when you told my husband, you said, you shouldn't be out there protesting. You need to be in your lane. You need to be writing. That's what you're good at. Like really like encouraging him and saying, don't feel bad about what you're not doing. Use your gifts and your what you can cultivate and what you can do to create the most impact based on where you are and what you do. And it was, it was a really beautiful moment where I felt this relief in him and him, him then stepping back and saying, where can I serve and show up with the gifts that I've been given? And we both know his talent is writing and that's what he's been doing. And that's how he's been serving. And like you said, that's where he should be serving because that were, that's where he can create the greatest impact. So
1: if it's a choice of him writing or him holding a sign, I think he should write. -hmm. Because that's his gift. I mean, you can speak to millions with your gift, or you can speak, you can be in a a mob of a couple hundred and just fade in. When you're special, be special.
0: Yeah, I love that. Thank you so much. Thank you for being here. Thank you for showing up on your vacation. I didn't know it was your vacation. (laughs)
1: Listen, I tell people we get 365 days until we don't. So every day is a vacation for me. I wake up every day. If I'm at my house, if I'm at the beach, if I'm in California, from in every day's vacation, because I get to wake up, live a dream, and I'm not in a cage, uh, I'm not around any craziness, and I get to whether I'm working or relaxing, I'm trust and believe, I'm planning on how I can make a difference.
0: Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you for being here. Thank you for showing up. I'm so thankful and I know this is gonna touch so many lives. Again, I'm so appreciative of you and and just your willingness to to make me see things and your support of just holding space to help me see things differently. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you.
1: Anytime you need me, just call me and it's a done deal. It's a yes. It's always a yes. Have a good one.
0: I am so grateful for Andre for joining us on the show today and sharing his personal story. It was so inspiring. There were so many moments I was deeply moved Throughout the conversation, I was being brought to tears, and I trust that you found just as much inspiration in the wisdom that he shared. I encourage you this week to take a moment and to think about and to get really honest with yourself about mentorship. How can you mentor a child or a teenager, and what would you need to let go of to create the space in your life to be able to do that? What are some tools right now? What is some research that could be done? What are some ways that you could reach out and begin to cultivate a relationship with just one child or one teenager? The reality is that we've all embodied limiting beliefs throughout our lives. And when we believe these beliefs to be true, they further embed more and more into the mind. And if we can be that voice, that inspiration that consistency that shows up for a child or a teenager with those limiting beliefs every single week or every other week or even every month. I truly trust that the world will become a much more beautiful, inspiring place to live. And so I encourage you to think about this. If you're called to move forward into mentorship, reach out to me, reach out to Andre. We would love to support you in further stepping into that role. I trust that you enjoyed this episode as much as I did. It was a conversation I learned so much from. I trust you learned quite a bit from. And if you feel called, it would mean the world to me again if you could just share it with one person that you love who could also benefit from Andre's wisdom. So to close this out, drop me a message on Instagram. If you've been listening to these podcasts, let me know what's been resonating, what you want to hear more about, what's inspiring you. I want to help you and support you in becoming happier, healthier, and I want to celebrate you. So make sure to find me on the gram, tag me there at Sarah and Stewart. And until next time, I'm sending you lots of love and a massive virtual hug and trusting that you'll have a beautiful, incredible week. All right, that concludes this cast. It is my honor to always be here with you. But hang tight because I have one last thought. You're here right now because you are ready. Because while many of us share the feelings of wanting more, not everyone is willing to do what it takes to get it. But you are here. You are ready. So this is your opportunity now to take what you just learned and implement it today. Make a pact with yourself to put just one thing into action. Just one. Write it down, do it, and share it with me. We are all in this together. Thank you for being here. You too can feel awesome from the inside out.